I'm Hilary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today is Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired and author of the new book, Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency, which is available on Kindle and hardcover on Amazon. You can also follow Andy on Twitter at A underscore Greenberg. Andy, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Very glad to be here. So Andy, we're going to talk about your new book, Tracers in the Dark, that I just mentioned shortly. But first, I'd like to personally and for our audience to learn a little bit more about you. And as I'd mentioned when introducing you, you're a senior writer at Wired. So do you want to take us through your career and how you became a journalist covering hackers, cybersecurity, surveillance, and informational freedom? Sure. I mean, it's kind of a strange sideways story. When I graduated from college, I had studied Mandarin and lived in China. And I thought I would be a China reporter initially. I went to Beijing and just kind of tried to just like launch myself as a freelancer there and wrote some stories. I wrote for some English language magazines there, but I found that like, I felt like I sort of didn't know what I was doing and, and decided to go to journalism school. And I came back to New York and started journalism school and then found then that I was in this strange position of trying to find stories while being a student and sort of being like, I don't know, stuck in school, which seems to be a problem for like journalism school in general. And so I started looking to the internet and found that there were kind of like, initially I was covering black hat and gray hat search engine optimizations and these kind of Google scams and schemes that people were running at the time. This was the mid 2000s and like 2006, 2007. And I got an internship at Forbes magazine where I published a few of those stories and they liked them. And so I got a job there in the middle of school. And the week that I started at Forbes just happened to be the week that the security, in quotes, reporter was leaving. She's a great reporter named Lisa Lair, who I believe now is maybe at Bloomberg or the New York Times. I think she's worked at both places. And she had been kind of a national security reporter for Forbes. But when I took it over, just being the kind of reporter, I don't know, the kind of nerd that I am, I suppose, I just made it about digital security. And I kind of took a little convincing. I mean, I don't think anybody at a place like Forbes really believed that covering cybersecurity could be a full-time job back then. But I sort of just like threw myself into that world of like Black Hat and DEF CON and the whole hacker community and started finding stories there. And I've been covering that stuff for the 15 years since then now. Very cool. I'm glad that I asked you that question because that is not a linear path by any means, but that's very cool. Glad you were able to share it. And as you write in the overview of Tracers in the Dark, you know, you, you just mentioned you know, following Black Hats and you know, DEF CON and everything like that. But cryptocurrency has fueled the digital black markets over the last decade or so, thanks to blockchains, anonymous ledgers, and lack of any governmental oversight or you know, financial institution oversight. But crypto isn't as impeccable as cyber criminals once thought it was. And you take us through that in your storytelling of various public and private investigators who have figured out how to utilize the right mixture of tools and financial forensics and just general sleuthing to crack the code and track down these cyber criminals. And so kind of a general higher level question, Andy, is what inspired you to pull all these stories together and highlight these investigators? Because I think Perhaps at first blush, telling the story, for example, of an IRS agent might not seem the most exciting, but you make it exciting and it is exciting and you really pull the reader in. 
Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. You know, I can kind of almost pick up where I left off. Like after a few years at Forbes and that, you know, covering that hacker world, I got really into learning and covering and writing about this cypherpunk movement of kind of crypto anarchist libertarians who believed that they could use encryption tools and things like the dark web to carve out a space where the government couldn't reach and carry out all sorts of subversive and even criminal things there, but also like, you know, just a way to a, a truly private space. And I wrote a book about WikiLeaks, which I think came out of that movement. And as I was doing that, I came upon this thing, Bitcoin, that was initially described to me as another kind of cypherpunk invention. And it was seen at the time. I mean, I think people forget this. Around 2011, when I wrote the first piece about Bitcoin for Forbes magazine, and Bitcoin was worth a dollar at the time, it was seen as an anonymous and potentially untraceable kind of digital cash for the internet. And that, as you said, like made me really interested in the ways that it was going to unlock a new world of online crime and, I mean, financial privacy, but also, you know, truly illicit things like money laundering and drug dealing online. And all of that happened in the years that followed. And I covered it all really closely. I mean, I was obsessed with the Silk Road. But then, you know, if I flash forward, you know, a decade, really, in 2020 or so, I was then at Wired Magazine, where I work now. And I began to see just how wrong I had been. Like in 2020, I started to see the Department of Justice include in their announcements of these major cyber criminal busts, one after another, that they were thanking Chainalysis, this cryptocurrency tracing company. And as I dug into Chainalysis and talked to them and to their associates and clients and customers and law enforcement, I began to realize that there had been this small group of detectives, including, as you said, like a few IRS criminal investigators, and one in particular who is the protagonist of the book, really, if there is one, Tigran Gambarian, who had essentially cracked the mystery of how to trace Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and had used this incredibly powerful forensic technique to surprise a whole ecosystem of cyber criminals who thought that they were untraceable and actually were the opposite of that. They were extremely traceable thanks to their misperception of Bitcoin's privacy, when in fact, it, it is in some ways easier to follow the money on the blockchain than it is even in the world of traditional finance. And that led to this kind of epic spree of detective stories and massive takedowns that is the subject of this book. You mentioned epic spree. I think that's a really great way to put it. And so my next question for you, Andy, is how did you begin your own investigation and in tracking down the right subjects to interview? Because they don't all seem like the types of folks who perhaps have their contact information readily available on LinkedIn. So, you know, did you have to go on the dark web yourself? And what type of sleuthing did you have to do? And, and how did you build that rapport to get the interviews and get folks to share details, et cetera? Well, I certainly, you know, have done that kind of reporting where you go onto the dark web and find the, you know, kingpin of a dark web drug site and convince them to do an interview or like find, you know, all of those kind of denizens of that weird underworld and interview them and talk to them. That's part of this book as well. You know, I interviewed the Dread Pirate Roberts, the creator of the Silk Road, the first dark web drug market back in 2013, one of the, you know, later stories I did for Forbes before going to Wired. And that's a part of this story. I mean, that is in some ways, like that happened actually just months before the Silk Road was taken down and 
the Dread Pirate Roberts was revealed to be Ross Ulbricht. The vacuum kind of left by the Silk Road is in some ways the genesis of this story. I mean, it is the kind of game of whack-a-mole that ensued and that kind of all led up to the birth of this dark web drug market, Alpha Bay, which eventually was 10 times the size of the Silk Road. And the hunt for that, the mysterious kingpin who ran that site is kind of the centerpiece of the book. But a lot of this book, like very in a very different way from my earlier reporting on this world, is told from the perspective of law enforcement and the detectives who are tracking down these criminals. And that's not something that I had really done in the past. I'm not the kind of reporter who usually tells stories from the point of view of law enforcement. And it was a, an interesting, like new sort of experience to find federal agents and prosecutors who are willing to tell these stories and sometimes, you know, tell them in, in an amount of detail that was difficult to extract because they don't want to reveal, you know, sources and methods, sometimes secret techniques, secret cryptocurrency tracing techniques, or, you know, there's at one point in this story, the IRS and Chainalysis together came up with a secret technique to find the IP address of the Alpha Bay server. And they essentially didn't want me to explain like how they did that. And I figured it out anyway. <laughs> and it was kind of a difficult um, question of like whether to reveal this technique that can be used essentially to find a dark web server in many cases. And wrestling with that was an interesting part of the reporting process. Ultimately, as I finished the reporting of the book, that secret technique essentially leaked on the dark web in a leaked chain analysis presentation to Italian law enforcement. And that took the pressure off me in a way because it, it was now out there already. I wasn't the one who was going to burn that technique. But yeah, it was like a, an interesting you know, method of speaking to law enforcement investigators and then trying to balance like revealing as much as you can of the truth of these stories without, I don't know, like enabling sometimes very serious and dangerous practices on the dark web that include things like child exploitation, you know, it is an interesting balance and one that I had to kind of strike for the first time. Yeah, I can imagine. And I think you did a great job of striking that balance and very fortunate for you that that was leaked about chain analysis's, you know, techniques and what they've worked on with federal agencies. So you didn't have to be in that rock and hard place of like, do I share this? It's important. So that's a happy circumstance. And as far as you mentioned, Alpha Bay, the story of Alpha Bay does take up a good part of, of your book. And, you know, you you cover Silk Road and Dread Pirate Roberts in the, in the first part, which is titled Men With No Names. But then you do devote those larger parts to Alpha Bay and Welcome to Video. And as I was reading, I guess I was wondering, from your perspective, how did you decide how to allocate the real estate of Tracers in the Dark to the various stories? Because I'm sure, you know, each one could be a book in itself. You know, it's a tough question. Like, I didn't really want to retell the story of the Silk Road or its takedown, but it's in some ways the necessary precursor to understanding the rest of this kind of crazy advent, the revelation that it was possible to trace cryptocurrency. The Silk Road was not taken down with cryptocurrency tracing, but I had to tell that story in part because she captured how people thought of Bitcoin and how it was used on the dark web before anybody realized it could be traced, but then also. T. Green Gambarian, my kind of like main character, this IRS agent, traced Bitcoins to prove that there were in fact two corrupt federal agents involved in the Silk Road investigation, one at the DEA and one at the Secret Service. 
And those two corrupt agents went to prison because their Bitcoins were traced. And that was as they stole essentially money from the Silk Road and sold law enforcement information to the Dread Pirate Roberts. You know, one of them was a kind of double agent and extorted money. And, you know, they did everything they could to kind of grab any cryptocurrency they could from the investigation they were a part of. And that was the first case, the first two cases, I should, in some sense, where cryptocurrency tracing was used to prove someone's guilt. And so that was a really important kind of first proof of concept that was carried out by this IRS criminal investigator, Tigran Gambarian. And then, you know, I, I don't know, I kind of tried to tell stories just at like the natural like size that they deserved. And the Alpha Bay case that followed as Alpha Bay grew into this massive, you know, sequel to the Silk Road kind of just deserved all that real estate in the book because it is just a crazy story that eventually involves six law enforcement agencies and the Dutch police secretly taking over a second dark web drug market so that when Alpha Bay would be torn offline, all of the refugees of that site would flood into this other dark web market that would be secretly under their control. And meanwhile, the Thai police are doing this elaborate sting operation in Bangkok with the help of the DEA and the FBI and the IRS and everybody to you know catch Alexander Kaz, who turned out to be the creator of Alphabet, with his laptop open in his home and this, you know, behind the gates in the outskirts of Bangkok. You know, that is a huge challenge to try to get him logged into Alphabet, computer open so it's not encrypted. When he had learned from the Silk Road story and never logged into Alphabet outside of his own home and never even opened his laptop outside of his bedroom, it turned out. And that very I don't know, elaborate and very physical, complex, global investigation just seemed to merit, you know, a big chunk of the book. And it's just one of the most thrilling stories I've ever had the opportunity to tell, really. And I was just lucky to kind of get it from all sides so that I could tell it in a lot of detail. And then finally, the Welcome to Video case. It's a simpler story in a way, the tracing that allowed this, essentially, like by some measures, the biggest child sexual abuse video market, welcome to video, to be taken down was simpler than what happened in the Alphabet case. But the impact of it was just so enormous that by the end of that case, 337 people had been arrested around the world, not just the administrator of this child sexual abuse materials network, whose cryptocurrency revenue basically could be traced to identify him in Korea, but also hundreds and hundreds of users of the site who had you know, uploaded and downloaded and recorded videos of child exploitation and essentially you know, were selling them on this site or rather using them to gain access to the site and get points you know, for their own downloads. All of that could be traced with cryptocurrency you know, by following cryptocurrency trails. And that made it, in some senses, the biggest human impact of any of these cases I tell in the book. So I really needed to tell that in, in detail too. And it is in some ways kind of the culmination of the whole story. Each of these is kind of important in their own way. And I just tried to you know tell the stories in the ways that they deserve to be told with human detail and the full detective story and bringing readers into the experience of like, you know, one clue leading to the next, to the next until these massive unprecedented takedowns were possible. Yeah, you you said human, and I think you did a very 
human and, and sensitive, respectful job of telling these stories, especially one as delicate as Welcome to Video is with the exploitation of children. And that's, I'm sure that was very you know, difficult for you. So I just commend you on that. Well, thank you. I, of course, was not like seeing these materials. I'm not legally even allowed to look at them, which I'm thankful for in a way. But it was you know, an interesting experience to talk to the federal agents and prosecutors who, in this case, the agents you know, worked at the IRS, IRS criminal investigations. I mean, it's, it's very weird and rare for these financial investigators to be working on a child exploitation case. And they were completely unprepared for the trauma that that would lead to for them, you know, what they would have to look at and the way that they would have to delve into this extremely dark layer of the dark web. And so trying to kind of like extract from them, I mean, trying to get federal agents to talk about their feelings is, is always a challenge, <laughs> but you know, that was part of the story here of like trying to capture what this did to them. That's a nice segue into my next question for you, which is typically with any crime, we learn a lot about the criminals and not often as much about the heroes, but you did a great and diligent job highlighting those heroes. And they're not all necessarily federal agents in the IRS or the DEA. And one that stands out to me, and you introduced her pretty early on and then, you know, a few times throughout the book, is Sarah Micklejohn, who is a professor in cryptography and security at University College London. So what should people know about the Sarah Micklejohns out there working hard to help determine, like in her instance, she was helping to determine a methodology for tracing cryptocurrencies and what other heroes would you want to give attention? I didn't really want to just tell the story from, you know, law enforcement's perspective alone and give the sense that this is like a simple cops and robbers story. It's not an entirely comfortable thing that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency was seen as a kind of antidote to financial surveillance, which is pervasive. I mean, all pervasive in the modern world. And then it turned out to be like, in fact, the opposite of an antidote. It was like a huge financial surveillance trap, ultimately. And, you know, that's not entirely a good thing. And Sarah Micklejohn, the University of California at San Diego researcher, and she, she's now at the University College of London as a professor, but she back at UCSD was the one who figured out many of the early cryptocurrency tracing techniques. I think she intended her first paper about that, which, you know, really launched a whole industry of cryptocurrency tracing companies that she was not a part of. She saw her work as almost like a public service announcement, just to make clear, like, Bitcoin is not the privacy haven you might think it is. It really might be the opposite. And I don't think that she was entirely comfortable herself with the fact that her techniques were then, have since been adopted by companies like Chainalysis and many of its competitors like TRM Labs and CypherTrace and this whole industry of cryptocurrency tracers to, you know, track people down and in some cases, put them in prison. So I was sort of looking for someone to be the conscience of this story and to give that more nuanced view that like financial privacy is a real concern. And not everybody who wants to be untraceable online is a criminal. And I was lucky that Sarah, I think, saw things in that same nuanced way. And ultimately, you know, she did turn down a job at Chainalysis. And that to me kind of was a nice capstone, kind of like to carry through this theme that Yes, cryptocurrency tracing is incredibly powerful, and it is almost like it's a fraught topic. The power of that technique can be used for good and for ill, and 
I think in most of these stories in the book, it's used for good. And it's, it's important that, you know, hundreds of child exploiters were tracked down and arrested and raided and in some cases are serving in prison sentences as a result. But I wanted to kind of tell a more complicated story and highlight that cryptocurrency is sometimes used by dissidents or journalists or like it has been seen as a civil rights and privacy tool. And that can be, you know, very valid. And the fact that cryptocurrency can be traced and that its privacy promises were false, you know, that's a morally complicated story. Definitely. And you kind of skipped ahead in my line of questioning, not that you knew that, but, you know, I wanted to talk about, you know, it should be noted that cryptocurrency in itself isn't bad and that you aren't by any means anti-financial privacy. So I wanted to ask you, what would you want our audience to know about the nuance of crypto surveillance technology and the impact these technologies can have on our privacy in the future? And you, you covered a, you know some of this just now, but I wanted to extend that to you as well, because I think it's an important clarification on your storytelling and your perspective. Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, Sarah Micklejohn saw her research and her continuing research really on the traceability of cryptocurrency as a kind of public service announcement. And I think I wanted to do a bit of that too. I mean, I talked to people for this book like Alex Gladstein at the Human Rights Foundation who sees cryptocurrency as like a really important way to fund human rights movements around the world. Like Ukraine, for instance, has received many millions of dollars of cryptocurrency from donors around the world to try to you know, protect itself from Russia. And he points to other places like Belarus and Venezuela, where, you know, cryptocurrency sometimes has been kind of a lifeline for people trying to fight their government or to just, you know, survive. And so he's extremely critical of companies like Chainalysis that demonstrated the capability of tracing all of these, you know, payments that he believes are really important for people's digital civil liberties. And I wanted to kind of capture that in book two. I have to admit, it's not really the subject of the book. It's probably the subject of a different book. But I you know, do see that cryptocurrency, well, it can be used for lots of, to me, kind of boring things like speculative investments, but it can also be used as the kind of subversive political tool for people who have real, you know, ideologies and principles. And I wanted to try to just, you know, get a sense of that into the book as well. And it's worth noting too that, and Alex Gladstein would also point this out, that you know, he would argue that this book is about a very specific period in time when people believed that cryptocurrency was untraceable and they were wrong. He thinks that a world is coming soon where cryptocurrency will be fully untraceable thanks to like improvements to Bitcoin. You know, I don't know about that, but I look at other cryptocurrencies like Monero and Zcash, and I see that it is becoming harder. Like Monero is a kind of continuation of this cat and mouse game. And I've seen claims from Chainalysis in that leaked presentation, for instance, that I mentioned, where they say that they can trace Monero, despite the fact that it's meant to be a much harder to trace cryptocurrency than Bitcoin. But then Zcash, you know, another so-called privacy coin, as far as I can tell, it truly does seem to be untraceable. Its blockchain is fully encrypted and it uses these kind of newfangled zero knowledge proofs that can basically like prove that a transaction took place and verify it while revealing zero knowledge, zero new information about, you know, who did that transaction or the amount of it or who received it. And that seems to me to be like maybe what Bitcoin was originally imagined to be like an actual 
kind of anonymous and untraceable digital cash for the internet. And it may be that, you know, like if Zcash starts to gain adoption, we will start to see the kind of world of crypto anarchy of, of some kind, or at least like financial privacy that Bitcoiners once believed that they were about to usher in. And so before we cover a final topic, Andy, we've covered the book in our conversation, I think in a really great way that keeps some interest, of course, for our audience and wanting to read the book. And I think that there's just so much in the book that they will want to read about. And you touched a little bit upon like kind of where we're going in the, in the future with Zcash and others. But what are we kind of set up for in the future here? And, and where do you see things heading, especially as someone who is fascinated by this and covering these topics, you know, for work, but then almost also, I'm sure you, you know, research these things personally as well. It's just I'm sure you have some thoughts there as well. In some ways, it was difficult to even just figure out when to end the story for the book because this world is just like continuing, this story is continuing to kind of snowball. I barely managed to fit into the book the case of Bitfinex, where these two money launderers, alleged money launderers, I should say, in New York, are accused of basically helping to steal 120,000 Bitcoins and the Department of Justice seized $3.6 billion worth of crypto from them, which is the biggest seizure of not just cryptocurrency, but money of any kind in US criminal history. And that's just, I could only kind of barely manage to get that story into the epilogue of the book, even though that seizure was carried out by one of the main characters of the book. And then it's just, you know, I think it's just continued. I mean, we, in the meltdown of FTX, for instance, which is, you know, kind of the cryptocurrency story on everybody's mind these days. I think that story is seen as a kind of like hybrid of like Theranos and Lehman Brothers or something like that. But in the midst of it, just as FTX was declaring bankruptcy, somebody took like close to half a billion dollars worth of cryptocurrency out of FTX. And nobody knows still publicly, at least, who did that. But the same cryptocurrency tracers who are the main characters of this book are following that money around the blockchain and waiting to see where it goes and who tries to cash it out. And it will be very difficult for whoever took it, whether it's, you know, insiders at FTX who were embezzling it or external hackers who were kind of trying to take advantage of the chaos to pull off their own heist. You know, it'll be very difficult for whoever they may be, these thieves, to cash out that money or spend it or make it usable in any way without being identified, thanks to the traceability of cryptocurrency. And so I think we'll soon probably find out who the culprit is there. And I just imagine that it's just one of like an endless number of stories that will just continue to unfold in this world and that I'll be covering. Absolutely. And as for what you cover and your work at Wired, you know, you cover a wide array of topics. And as I read through your stories, I wonder, Andy, how you get your story ideas, because specifically what prompted me to ask this question was the article you recently wrote titled Spy Cams Reveal the Grim Reality of Slaughterhouse Gas Chambers. And I don't eat pork just by merit of I think pigs are very intelligent animals. and It makes me sad, but you know, it's not necessarily what I would think you'd be covering, but it's it makes a lot of sense. And so I just wanted to ask you that question as well. Well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm very lucky in my job at Wired that I'm given the kind of space and time to have some idea that's sometimes only kind of tangentially related to this world of hacking or cybersecurity in this kind of like traditional sense. And in this case, this is a story about how animal rights activists are 
breaking in, sneaking in really to factory farms and slaughterhouses, and then using some of the same kind of like espionage technologies that, you know, we traditionally associate with, I don't know, spies or sometimes with hackers, but using them as a kind of tool of information freedom to reveal corporate practices, like in this case, you know, the mass slaughter of pigs using these new CO2 or not new, but increasingly adopted CO2 gas chambers that can suffocate as many as 1600 pigs in an hour in a slaughterhouse and, and do so, it turns out in an extremely painful way that involves a lot of suffering for the animals, but is marketed as painless and, you know, stress-free for pigs and revealing that, revealing, you know, that I would say, you know, illusion, the reality of what happens in these slaughterhouses to me is like, in some ways, it's kind of like the flip side of the same surveillance techniques that I write about in the book. Like, you know, you can trace cryptocurrency to reveal what people are really doing on the dark web, or you can hide these increasingly tiny radio connected minuscule spy cameras inside of a slaughterhouse and reveal the truth there. And in some ways, they're kind of like two sides of the same story, which is about the ways that people try to keep information secret or private or secure and the way that other people, you know, for good or for ill, seek to pull the lid off of that secrecy or security and, you know, reveal this stuff to the world. But I, yeah, I, like, I, I get to kind of like follow these ideas wherever they lead at Wired and hopefully sometimes find like unexpected stories like this. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing more with us about your book, Tracers in the Dark, as well as, you know, what inspires you to follow the stories that you do follow and report on what you do. And I think I've said it once, but I want to say it again. I really admire your work. I think you do a great job and you're a great journalist. And I think obviously that's supported. You're award-winning, but um, I just wanted to say that to you and thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and join us. Well, thank you, Hillary. It's been a, a really interesting conversation and I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm Hilary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today was Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired and author of the new book, Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency, which is available on Kindle and hardcover on Amazon. And you can follow Andy on Twitter at A underscore Greenberg. And for more on cybersecurity and cybercrime, you can listen to all of our podcast episodes at cybercrime.radio. 